Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on today's show, with over $150 billion in construction projects queued up in the next few years, Louisiana is in the midst of an industrial boom. We'll learn what that means for the state's workforce. Also, we're going to learn about the history and architecture of the state capitol from a producer of a documentary about Louisiana's Art Deco seat of government. We'll hear that coming up, but first, last month we reported on new efforts from the Houston-based firm Clutch Consulting to close down New Orleans homeless encampments and to relocate unhoused people. But now that this project is officially underway, some are raising concerns over who is being prioritized in that rehousing initiative and what effect closing down the encampments is having on those who are homeless citywide. Lou Palmer has been covering the story for Verite News and joins us now for more. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So when a new client makes contact with the housing agency in New Orleans, from what I'm reading, two things that are considered are vulnerability and visibility. Could you tell us what exactly do those two things mean in this context and how are people's needs being assessed? Sure. So generally when somebody is, you know, making contact with a service agency, they'll be assessed on, you know, their vulnerability. That could be, um, do they have any disabilities, any chronic illnesses, any um, ongoing issues of that regard, but also, you know, how long they've been um, unhoused for. Generally, um, there's a threshold as to when you're considered chronically unhoused and you need to sort of, that needs to be a a one-year period. Um, And then that's sort of considered somebody who's chronically unhoused and is then on a priority um, to move forward and and to receive a voucher. Um, But it is, of course, very complicated because, you know, it's not a static list. Then people are, new people are always coming onto the list. Um, so people may sort of be bumped down based on their their vulnerability. The piece on visibility is not necessarily um, part of that intake process. That's just sort of a consideration that um, housing advocates are are making. Um, you know, understanding that that some unhoused populations are far more visible, and so there may be multiple pressures to um, sort of house those people first, or to to either you know push them away or to um, remove them from. Uh, sort of high traffic, high tourist areas, and they're they're speaking specifically about the the damage that that does. In November, the city closed the Chapatulas encampment. It's a homeless encampment located below an expressway, and they relocated 36 people. But I understand this has caused some racial equity concerns to arise. Why is that? So one of the issues that Unity brought to our attention is that, you know, there's a, a difference in terms of unhoused populations, uh, you know, racial makeup, and often that encampments tend to be um, whiter. But that specifically within this effort, they looked through who had received housing, and though, according to Unity's numbers, 65% of the unhoused population in New Orleans are Black, um, only 28% of Black people were housed through this encampment effort. So doing rehousing of the unsheltered and their visibility being a factor, uh, some people are saying, might just sound like uh, it's another way of saying that the city is engaging in an effort to clean up encampments that are more visible to, say, tourists or to others who have more influence. Is that basically what's happening, or is this different? So there is certainly a concern amongst, um, yeah, housing advocates, national housing advocates, that, you know, uh, because of all of those different pressures, whether it's pressure from business, pressure from um, the city, et cetera, to you know, say that these people are the most visible, um, that they, that that may be, you know, playing a factor in, in terms of um, 
that being the focus as opposed to looking at unhoused people across the city. Um, you know, there's particularly around the Chapitulis um, encampment that's directly adjacent to the River District, which is, you know, currently broke ground and will include new offices for Shell Oil, amongst um, other things. And so that's certainly a concern for, for housing advocates that, that they're focusing on people that are the most visible, as opposed to looking at who's at the most need and vulnerability across the entire city. We're speaking with Lou Palmer, a reporter for Verite News, who has been reporting on the latest efforts in New Orleans to close down homeless encampments. You've spoken about Unity, one of the groups working with this Clutch Consulting. Uh, Unity now says they will consider race as a factor when it comes to future encampment closures. How exactly will they take race into account? What effect should that have? So the most recent conversations that we have had, it it was an acknowledgement of this uh, sort of disparity in the data that they're seeing. Um, As we understand it right now, the sort of conversations being had about how to factor in all of those different pieces around, you know, uh, disability and chronic illness and um, people that are really at the high end of vulnerability and in need of housing, as well as the racial disparity. This effort targeting unhoused people who specifically live in encampments, there are, of course, people without housing who don't live in encampments. How about those people who aren't living in the places that are trying to be cleaned up? Um, What have you heard? How is it affecting them? So certainly there are many people across the city, um, you know, in, you know, sleeping in their cars and abandoned buildings and many other places where they may be very vulnerable to uh, simply because they're on their own, but also because they're dealing with um, very serious health conditions. Um, so it's it's difficult to say, uh, you know, whether they can tell directly that the encampment effort has, you know, sort of pushed them further down the list. But people are, are really eager to sort of um, know and understand what their next steps are, what their next options are, and they're, they're sort of feeling um, quite vulnerable. And, you know, one person we've spoken to in particular was at the Chapatulis encampment, um, but was not put on the closed list for housing um, and is now at the Claiborne encampment um, and has also been told that he's not been put on the, the, on the list for housing. From what I read in your coverage, there are people who it sounds like the time it has taken to get them housing has increased Is that something you're hearing a lot since this effort started? So that was uh, when we spoke with service providers at the Harry Thompson Center. In particular, that was a concern. Um, They also mentioned that there had been, you know, housing vouchers since earlier in the summer. So it could be multiple factors at play here. Um, But it's just, you know, noticing that in general, their their wait list um, has increased and that the length of time it's taking um, to sort of bring somebody into housing, even when they are at sort of the high end of vulnerability at that, that uh, time has increased, um, according to those service providers. And from the people who are most affected who you've talked to, what is it that it sounds like they want those in power to know? What do they want people to hear? Mm-hmm. That's a difficult question, and I can really only speak to the individuals that I've spoken to. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's about to get cold in the city. Um, you know, one individual who I've spoken to, he had sort of an ongoing injury from the last uh, cold snap that we had last year um, when he was, uh, you know, released from the hospital, ended up getting an injury in his foot. And um, and so, you know, it's just people often don't think about the wintertime as being a really harsh time. So it's it's all of those different factors. And going forward, the fact that, um, yeah, this is a particularly vulnerable time uh, about to go into the cold season. And they just sort of want some clarity and some answers about how it's being done and how people are being prioritized. And you mentioned in the reporting there's 
a homeless encampment that's next for the city that they've planned to close. Have you heard anything more about that? Do you know where that is? So we've been told that they're um, reluctant to to say what the location is for a couple of reasons. Um, one being that they don't want to advertise the location and then have people come there expecting that they'll be given housing directly. And the other is that they don't sort of don't want um, media to kind of flock there. Um, so the reasons we're being given is that it's to you know protect the people at the encampment. But um, I understand that they don't currently have a, a date for the Chapatulis. It was a really strict November seventeenth date. But for this encampment, I think it's um, going to be a bit looser. Lou Palmer is a reporter for Verite News. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Louisiana is facing an industrial construction boom, $154 billion in projects, is in the queue, many of those projects looking at starting construction as soon as next year in 2024. Economist Lauren Scott recently released a report saying Louisiana is going to need thousands of more workers to help feed that industrial construction frenzy, and he's here with us now to explain. Welcome to the program. Well, glad to be here. Thank you, Adam. So tell us the basics about these industrial projects that are planned. How much construction are we talking about? Well, if you look just in the Baton Rouge area, an outfit called the Greater Baton Industrial Alliance has done surveys of firms, constructed firms, how many workers will you need? And uh, just in the Baton Rouge area alone, 5,400 workers, so a lot. As a matter of fact, a number of them have already geared up. I think Turner Industries is already looking for 3,000 workers and a performance contractor, another big industrial contractor, has just recently added about 2,000 people. Expand that statewide for me, if you could. What kind of workforce statewide will we need? Well, unfortunately, we don't have really good numbers statewide for the estimate, but it's going to be very big. I mean, to give you an idea, one of the things I looked at is each one of these metropolitan areas, we document the projects that have been announced, the ones that are underway, and the ones that are waiting a final investment decision, something called FID. And uh, just in the Baton Rouge, Lake Charles, the Baton Rouge areas, We're talking about $34 billion in projects underway and another 121 billion projects that have been announced but have not issued an FID. So it is a massive industrial boom coming. That tells us a little bit about how you get the numbers. First, though, about those projects that need workers, uh, what kind of workers? You said 5,400 workers in general. What are the specialties we're talking about? Well, I mean, they range all over the place. They range from uh, just welders. If you look at the uh, survey that was done by the Greater Baton Rouge Industrial Alliance, I think they indicated everything from pipe fitters to electrical workers, carpenters to general contractors. Pipe fitters, very, very common in this industrial construction. So it goes across a wide range. Do we have the people to fill these roles? Well, the interesting thing about the industrial construction side is that unlike many other sectors of the economy, like retail trade or services or whatever, this construction sector has a very nomadic component. There are people that just travel all over to wherever the job sites have to be, particularly true of people with special skills like pipe fitters, for example, or welders. If you go from here, from where I'm sitting in Baton Rouge, over to Lake Charles, one of the things you'll pass are some RV parks. And those are not RV parks for KOA people, people you know, for, for people going for recreational purposes, those are places where these people are living. 
if you go across the Sunshine Bridge, on just the other side of the Sunshine Bridge, uh, on the west side of the Mississippi River, another very large park there, RV Park. And what happens, these people will, will just travel to wherever the business is. It's, it's unlike almost any other sector of the economy that you'll find. Is this more about training up local people to fill these jobs or more about attracting people to come work here? Uh, I think the answer to that is yes. In fact, if you talk to the people at the ABC uh, outfit here in Baton Rouge, they are going to high schools, they're going to junior colleges, they're going every place saying, you know, let, let us show you what's coming here. Let us show you the wage rates that are being paid. And, uh, you know, think about getting into this sector of the economy. So they're trying to grow it organically here. But I think given the size of the numbers here, uh, these numbers are so huge that you're going to have to rely on bringing people in from out of state. And hey, that's that's a good thing. They're going to come here. They're going to spend a lot of money while they're here. They still have to pay to live here. So they'll be spending a lot of money while they're here. We're speaking with economist Lauren Scott about the anticipated labor shortage for industrial construction workers. Would you say it's realistic to expect that we'll be able to accommodate that labor in the long term? Uh, what do we need to do to build up the ability to to fill those jobs? Well, the question is, will it be long term? One of the natures of these industrial construction projects is that we get a boom and then we get a not boom. If you go to Lake Charles, for example, just look at Lake Charles's employment uh, between 20, I think, 2013 and 2018 or so during that time period. Lake Charles was actually the fastest growing metropolitan area in the United States, not just Louisiana, but the United States. And the reason for this is there was a huge industrial boom going on over there. Now, once the boom was over, their employment started to drop off pretty significantly for a while. They were still way better than they were before the boom because they have a whole lot more now permanent operation jobs there. But it'll have a tendency to go away. I don't anticipate that this boom is going to last much beyond 2030, maybe. We'll just have to see. But we have a huge bubble here of activity that's probably going to last us well into 2030 or so. What does a city like Baton Rouge, Lafayette, Lake Charles, what do places like this do to take advantage of that bubble and to make it last, to keep people employed? Well, for one thing, we are extremely lucky. Those three areas, uh, the reason that the boom is happening on I-10 and below I-10 is because those three metropolitan areas bring something important to the table. What is happening here is chemical firms all over the world are coming to this area of the state and to southeast Texas. The reason they're doing that is because they're making stuff out of natural gas. And this is the cheapest place in the world to get natural gas. So these three areas bring something to the table that's very important to these folks, and that's why we're getting them. That's why we're getting them instead of, say, Alabama or Mississippi or Florida. You, you mentioned some advantages that Louisiana has. This boom that we're having right now, tell me what kind of industrial projects are we talking about? Are they all chemical? Are some of the alternative industries playing any any roles? The, it's, it's really dominated by chemicals and one other sector, and that's LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas exporters. Uh, again, because natural gas is so cheap here, so it's primarily the chemical firms and the LNG exporting firms that dominate this by a large margin. Constructing these things, what are they doing to attract the labor? Is this all about paying the highest wage, or is it more complicated than that? Well, the most important thing is if you have a shortage of something, you don't have enough of something, 
you raise the price and that solves the problem. And because this, again, is a very nomadic workforce, uh, that typically tends to work. And so they're, they're having to pay more money to draw people organically here out of some industries like retail or services or something like that into these industries. So the main tool they'll use is showing them the wage rate they can earn. And it's, as it turns out, it's a very princely wage rate. They make very good money. Lauren Scott is president and founder of Lawrence E. Scott & Associates, consultants, and also professor emeritus of economics at LSU. Lauren, thank you for being here today. Adam, thank you very much. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. On Monday, Louisiana Public Broadcasting released their latest documentary. It's called A Tall Order, the Louisiana State Capitol. The film explores the Capitol building in Baton Rouge, everything from the architecture to the artwork to the significance of this iconic building. Senior producer of the film, Dorothy Kendrick, joins us now for more on what viewers can expect to learn from this film. Thank you for being here, Dorothy. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you start by telling us a little bit about how this idea came about? Why tell the story of the state capitol building? I saw some video from a drones for another program we had done. And when I saw those pictures, I thought it was shameful that the people of Louisiana had never really gotten a chance to see their state capitol. Many of us run up those steps five or six times a year for some reason. And you, we kind of take it for granted. And even when we were at a distance, we still don't take the time to look at it. Well, those drone pictures up close where you can see what all of the reliefs are made me think we have got to do more with these pictures that we've done. And then when I started looking up the history of the building, the story itself was even more compelling than the images. And that is possible. When you look at what Huey Long went through to get the building erected, it's just a great story. Getting into that history of the building, tell us about the building's main architects. Can you tell me about the building's curators? Well, the architects, they're all New Orleans boys. All three of them had gone to Tulane, but the professor had studied at the top architectural schools under Beaux-Arts, Beaux-B-A-U-X-Arts in Paris, and he knew all about this decorative form of architecture and how to create it. So that's one of the reasons why when Huey Long told them that he wanted a building to tell the story of Louisiana, he knew exactly where to go to find the top artists in the country to create the look that Huey wanted. Of course, Huey P. Long is a story in himself. Now, according to the film, Governor Huey P. Long wanted to tell a story of Louisiana through artwork. How was that done throughout the building? What are some examples of the artwork that speaks to the story of our state? Well, most of it you can see on the outside of the building. If you look closely, there are like four or six people at the top. All of these people represent history, philosophy. At the lower levels, there are Native Americans. There, the French representative, the Spanish representative, everybody who's had any claim over Louisiana. They're holding different objects to represent that influence over Louisiana. And then you will see these reliefs going all the way around the state capitol, representing the different wars. Andrew Jackson on his horse, even Huey Long, with the architects making plans to build this state capitol. The first French women to come over to serve as mates for the men who came ahead of them. 
right in the front of the state capitol, there's a relief showing those women with their little suitcase. It's there. Nobody ever sees it, but it's there. That's a lot of visual storytelling. What do you have to consider when the central character of a film isn't a person, but rather it's a building? And just remind us, when was the capital constructed and why was it situated where it was in Baton Rouge? Well, the capital was built. Uh, the paperwork, the legislative effort started in 1930. Uh, Huey had had problems getting the legislature approved it when he first took office. But after he won that Senate race, after he the effort to impeach him, by then he had already started building roads and bridges and hospitals and things like that, that the people of Louisiana were beginning to see the benefits of the way he did business. He basically said, at first I would say, please, but now I'm a dynamiter. I will dynamite people out of my way. Some of his biggest opponents were the representatives in New Orleans. So... He used the carrot stick approach. New Orleans got the charity hospital out of this. They got the bridge across the Mississippi River out of this. They got a lot of roads out of this. You're making it sound like New Orleans made out like bandits. Yes, they did. But Louisiana made out like bandits, too, with that great building that, when you know the history of it, of course, people have asked me, was this about his ego or was this about the people of Louisiana? One of the architects says he believes it was a little bit of both, but mostly about something he wanted the people of Louisiana to take pride in. So we're speaking with LPB senior producer Dorothy Kendrick. We're talking about a new documentary of theirs that's out. It's called A Tall Order, the Louisiana State Capitol. Now, in working on this project, on this film, is there anything that you learned that surprised you, that caught you off guard? What are some of the biggest takeaways? I started off working on something just because of pretty pictures, but the gravity of the pace of the work that was taking place, the fact I was very proud that there were three Louisiana men who did it. But I can tell you that I had looked for people who already knew the stories, but nobody really knew the history uh, that I could find in the architectural world or in the history world who could tell me how this building was erected, why it was erected. So literally, I had to go into the archives, and it made me take tremendous pride because of the effort that one of the architects 50 years later said, we will never see this much craftsmanship in another building again. This building was elevated, put together, erected in 14 months. It is patterned off of the Nebraska State Capitol. It took a decade to build that building. So when you see how fast it was done, and you look at how the architects, as much work as they had going on to get this building done, you realize it was a major force that got it done and they were able to bring in the best people because it was during the Depression. So people were out of work and even the common laborers, they were lined up. There's a story that they were lined up behind a fence. If somebody didn't work fast enough or hard enough, they were just kicked out of the way and bring in the next person in line. And there was even a train track built to the grounds of the Capitol to bring in supplies, 2,500 carloads to bring in all the steel and all of the stone and everything needed to build this building. Hmm. Dorothy Kendrick is senior producer for Louisiana Public Broadcasting. We've been discussing the new documentary, A Tall Order, the Louisiana State Capitol. Thank you for being here, Dorothy. It's been a pleasure. That does it for Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. 
A thank you to Lou Palmer from Verite Newsroom, economist Lauren Scott, and LPB's Dorothy Kendrick. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 noon and 7 p.m. on this station. The show is available on Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.